What's going on, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Nerdwine Podcast, episode 99. Chris, we are one week away from our 100th episode. How are you feeling about it? Old. Old. <laughs> We've been doing this since when? I guess, was it 2019? Yeah, I think so. I think we restarted in 2019. Yeah. That's not counting all the hero craving episodes. Right, that's what I'm trying to think, oh. because you know, add all those in, and we're maybe at... 150 maybe (laughs) 200 (laughs) i didn't go back and count them all um but yeah we got some fun things planned for episode 100 uh coming your way we're gonna might even look back at our first episode what it looked like and you know how we are now (laughs) i don't even think you're on camera for like the first four or five episodes i'm not (laughs) oh it's gonna be fun but quick let's before we get into everything because i really cannot wait to talk about the last of us this week uh, I'm your host, Tyler Haynes, with my good friend and co-host, Mr. Chris Rivers, right here. Uh, quick housekeeping before we jump into it all. Next week is our 100th episode. We've had a lot of, uh, I don't know, like monumental episodes here recently with the Rick episode, the best of 2022, coming back in and everything. But here we are with another one with episode 100 next week, so make sure you are tuned in and subscribe to everything. Uh, if you enjoy the show, make sure you leave us a thumbs up on YouTube or give us a good rating for our podcasting app you use. If you don't, if you don't enjoy what you see or hear, make sure you leave us a comment. Let us know how we can improve the show. Can't do better. If you don't, let us know what we can do better with. If you want to do more, you can always go to patreon.com slash nerdwide. Three different tiers for three different monetary values. I think the top is $3, and it's just a monthly subscription. If you do that, you get certain perks and things from us, as well as telling us what you want us to watch TV-wise, movie-wise, what you want us to play games, if you want us to read books, comic books, anything like that. Those are the spots to do it. But Chris, how has your week been before we jump into this fun episode here? been pretty good. Um, light week at work. Um, Always fun times. Yeah, I mean, we <laughs> worked all of our hours, but it wasn't anything stressful. Or yeah. Anything, so. um, I came home a couple nights and just went to sleep earlier than I normally mm. do. So, Isn't that fun? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then at the same time, I feel like I'm not doing what I should. I, like, I hate it. You go, like, it's, it's good to have the sleep, but then there's also that you're losing time of doing other things that you could be doing. I've, it's been that way with me with games lately. But luckily, like there's not been any crazy games I want to play right now. And we're ramping up. I think you know, Harry Potter comes out in two weeks from our recording. And that's going to be the next game that takes me away. And then the Destiny expansion the, at the end of that month. There's another game at the end of that month. So I'm just ramping up till the busy season. And then we... Because Forspoken comes out this week, and I play the demo. Not gonna play yet. Reviews launched on Monday morning, so we'll see <laughs> what the rest of the industry thinks of it. Because I I did not have a good time, and from what I'm reading, neither did anybody else. So we will see. Yeah, as far as that game goes, I was it. I think it was a lot of Pierce that did a like the first hour. Yeah, you know, like the demo. It's, I didn't. No, I didn't, it's, didn't appeal to me at all. It's a pretty game. That's. And that's about it. <laughs> like yeah. I, I played it and messed around with the controls. The controls did not feel good at all. And it apparently, would, like the writing's not even that good. I'm like, oh. So it would be great as a screensaver just to have it kind of yeah. wander through that world, but it didn't look yeah. appealing. That, that's about it. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, nothing crazy on my end this week. It's been a lot of working. I don't feel like I played a lot of games this week. I watched a lot of our TV and caught up on it. But um, 
trying to think if we did anything crazy. I don't think so. We haven't been home a lot either. So, and then Fury's birthday is this Thursday, so we're gonna have to celebrate that. Already scoped out some puppy cakes and things like that. So, put a volume in there. And calm yeah, him down. <laughs> calm him down a little bit. Hey, I just came up to the door a minute ago. And video watchers, if you're watching me, you'll see me look to my left. I guess yeah. still left over here. And that's me just watching for him because he'll go there and I can see his eye through the crack of the door. <laughs> but Chris, have you been watching anything TV wise this week? Anything fun? Um, I got caught up on some of the network shows that I typically watch, like yeah. Blue Bloods and um, Young Sheldon and some stuff like that. But I, nothing. That's how we were. Oh, no, no, we. So we caught up. We're catching up on Ghost, which is still a great show, which got renewed for a season three. Um, Young Ronk, we're still catching up on Below Deck. We still have a couple episodes, but we did watch an episode of that 90s show. And turns out Jamie did watch that 70s show religiously, every episode, everything. So we watched the first episode and it was great. Uh, yeah. the guy that plays Eric does not, I don't know if he's acted in anything else since then. Yeah, he has. He did not do the best of jobs. Everybody else is great, but he, not so much. Uh, Topher Grace is who you're talking about. He, um, he's on in a home economics. I don't know what that is. Which is, uh, it's a pretty successful show. Oh. Um, on ABC, I think. Hmm. Well, he might just had this, because this is the first one, and I don't think he's in anymore. But, like, it was not a, he didn't do that well. Like, he looked very uncomfortable and overacted sometimes. I was like, hmm. Yeah. That's not. Hope he's not one of our listeners because we just lost. Him. Yeah, we just just lost him. <laughs> but other than that, nothing. We watched the little sixty-minute special on Harry, and that was it. So nothing crazy. But what we did watch, and let's. I'm going to full-on spoilers for our shows, which is going to be The Last of Us this week and National Treasure: Edge of History. I was right. Go put it on record. The man in the cell. I know future spoilers here for our. That's what we're about to recap. Was her dad? We thought he was dead the entire time. No, no, no. He was the Salazar that was in there, which lets me believe that Salazar is the the guy that's been trailing them. Because he's obviously not working with Billy, so I think he's that Salazar. Maybe. The long-haired guy that attacked her in the um, the library and everything. He but, was there again. Yeah. She went so that's why I'm thinking, ah, that's Salazar. Because yeah. he's still the missing piece of this whole puzzle now. But we'll get to it. We'll get yeah, there. Yeah, we'll get there. We are going to thelaughingplace.com by Bill Galsell again for our recap. Let's see. Agent Ross plays the audio file that she was given, which supposedly supposedly proves that Jess poisoned Peter Sadusky for a clue in the treasure hunt. Agent Hendricks is very happy with Ross's work and wants her to arrest Jess, but Ross still has her doubts about the story. Jess is making her escape from Billy with the help of Tasha and Oren and plans across the border into Mexico to continue the hunt alone. Tasha is trying to convince her to stop because if Jess leaves the country, she won't be able to return. Knowing Salazar is the only person who can tell her exactly where the next relic is, Jess plans to make an alliance with Salazar in hopes of stopping Billy. Despite her protest, Tasha and Oren join her on the trip to Mexico. The group soon finds out that Jess is wanted for Sadusky's murder. Ethan arrives at the apartment to find Jess, Tasha, and Oren scrambling to pack. Oren is frantically looking through his shoeboxes because to Tasha's surprise, he has a fair amount of money stored away uh, should Jess ever need to escape from the authorities. 
what a good friend. Because like this is not even before this was all before the the treasure hunt and everything. He had this right. just in case, and I'm like, dude, selling his shoes that he you know, obviously a big sneakerhead, and just to keep money for Jess to escape, which I just good for him. Like he's he's probably my favorite character on this whole show, and he's I've had a lot of fun with him. Uh, Jess learns that Ethan learns that from Ethan that Liam was framed by Billy and that he's in the hospital having been beaten up by Casey at the uh, at, period there at the courthouse. Billy learns from a fellow reenactor about the original Alamo being a hometown in Mexico. Too easy, way too easy. By the way, I don't you know that they had to do that, but I was like, uh, too easy. Uh, way too easy. <laughs> The group is leaving with Ethan staying behind. He makes a promise to Jess that he'll look out for Liam, and he encourages her to find the treasure. Ethan vows to lawyer up and clear her name. Agent Ross is searching through Jess's items when Ethan comes in to try and clear her name. Ross plays the audio of Jess and Sadusky's argument, but Ethan quickly proves to Ross that the tape is a fake. Ross's skepticism about Ethan's claim, which is very... I would be too if I was FBI agent, because he was like... He goes, oh, they, she used further, and Jess got perfect scores in English and everything, and been farther. The only one that used further is uh, people from England. And I was like, yeah, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's not going to hold up in court. <laughs> but, you know, which is what she pretty much says. Um, Liam arrives home to see the clue, clue room in shambles. Casey gets Billy free from jail before they can do much. Agent Ross approaches him outside the jail. Billy is less than helpful to Ross. Uh, Jess, Tasha, and Oren cross into Mexico back in Baton Rouge. Liam tries to call Jess, but has no luck. He learns that his singing act in Graceland has acquired him fight quite a fan base, and his manager at work offers him money to play one song, which Liam desperately needs. His new song, of course, is written about Jess. And Mexico... That was beautiful. Cash. Yeah, just cash. Just for one song. I don't need yeah. you to do anything. I just need you to do one song. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> Jess, <laughs> Jess, Tasha, and Oren cross into Mexico. Back in Baton Rouge, Liam tries... Oh, we already said that. In Mexico, Jess, Oren, and Tasha are killing time until prison visit hours begin. Liam plays to a packed house, and the audience is his grandfather's nurse. Chasing after the nurse, Liam learns that the nurse actually saved him from pulling him by pulling him out of the river. Confused, Liam wonders why he saved him. The nurse, the nurse confirms that Peter was murdered and that Billy has gone too far. Too far before storming off, the nurse gives Liam back his phone. In Mexico, Ethan joins the group. He tells them about Billy's fake audio recording. Back at the FBI, Ross is laying out her suspicions about Billy Pierce, and this is some, and that about this is the, and this is about the treasure hunt. As she describes her suspicions, Hendricks tells her that Jess is guilty, and if Ross wants her to get her career back on track, she needs to arrest Jess, which is a complete 180 from three or four episodes ago when he said, you know, he was the one that got the tip about the declaration of independence and didn't do it and said, forget about it. But it's like history's almost repeating itself. And he's like saying, yeah, forget it. Don't worry about that. So whatever. I mean, like two. All right. Sorry about that. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back and we are recording. My internet just randomly turned off for no reason, but came right back on. So don't know what that was about, but as we were talking about, I'm going to back up just a little bit here to catch Chris back up. I'm not sure where happened in the recording, but yes, I don't understand why the, why, what's his name? I've got it here. Um, the FBI agent kind of just does a complete 180 with uh, it's Ross and just it has Ross here. Anyways, with Ross, but he... Two episodes ago, he was like, yeah, you know, I trust you, follow your gut, you've got this. But now it's just, you know, now you've got your girl, don't, you know, whatever. 
which is scary. This says everything about our society we live in with deep fakes and everything like that you can do now. How do you know what's truth and what's not? So, but, uh, let's see. Listening to the tape, Jess is inspired to use the threat of Billy to coax Salazar into helping her. Though they know nothing about Salazar, Jess foes, uh, Jess goes in to meet the mysterious criminal. Initially brushed off by the guard, Jess admits that Salazar killed her father and she wants to try and get some answers about what happened. Called from his cell, Salazar goes to meet Jess. To her shock, Salazar reveals himself to be Jess's father, Rafael Rios. Nailed it back in like episode two, I think, or three. <laughs> it turns out he escaped Salazar when he was on the treasure hunt. And he was arrested for breaking into the bank in Alamo, Mexico. Rafael claimed to be Salazar to keep Jess and her mother safe. He proves that he is her father by singing a, a little bit of a refrain from Jess's lullaby, which is beautiful. But Raphael's a little crazy, though, which I would be, too, if after 20 years I found out everything he just found out. So, yeah. <laughs> Raphael is saddened to learn that his wife, Manuela, died last year. Jess confronts him about his absence, and while Raphael describes the importance of the treasure and nothing else, Jess tells him that he, her mother never mentioned the treasure and that nothing is more important than family. Because he went like, all in on the treasure right at the bit. He says, now that you're here, he says, I know why you're here. And he said, you, you've got to get this treasure it's our duty to protect it and didn't really care anything else about the family or anything which i i kind of get because this is a you know several century old treasure and thing that this family and these people have been tasked to guard and and keep safe and he's just another part of the the plume serpent so i mean i get it i i completely understand but it's also like dude come on this is your daughter you haven't seen in, since she was a baby. I mean, come on, have a little bit of sympathy here. And his wife died, and he brushes it aside. Yeah, he's like, yeah, yeah. Okay, and. <laughs> yeah. Raphael informs her that there was no clue in the bank. and provides a cryptic clue as to where he thinks the relic is. Outside of prison, Jess tells a group of boys she learned that she did exactly what her mother didn't want her to do. Wanting to give up, Jess is encouraged by Ethan to continue the hunt, telling her that she has a sense of purpose. Ethan tells Jess that she is born to find this treasure. Using the clue provided by Raphael, the group searches for where to go next. Back in Baton Rouge, Liam finally hears the messages left by Jess and tries to call her back only to keep getting her voicemail. The group finds a convent that traces back to a very important nun in Mexico City. Orin states that a convent wouldn't be a perfect place to hide a treasure. Inside the convent, the group follows a tour looking for the clue. An organ on display would be the perfect location to hide it. Approaching the organ, Jess believes a specific song must be played. S thinks that Jess's mom's lullaby is the piece of music that is the key to the organ, which is awesome. Again, I've said it every week. I love how they can just put these little small things in and tie it all back in. Yeah. Uh, they attract the attention of the nuns, uh, but before they're interrupted, a secret compartment in the organ is revealed and Jess finds the last relic. Carrying the relic out, Jess is confronted by the nun who wonders what she has. When Jess tells her the truth, the nun lets them go because she has been waiting for someone like her for a very long time. The burden of protecting the treasure is now on Jess. Beautiful. Absolutely loved that scene. And I knew that's what it was as soon as she approached Orem and did not you know, uh, didn't take any of his crap and walked straight in. I was like, Oh, she knows about the relic. 
with all the relics open, the treasure map is now complete, and the group is trying to figure out the final location of the treasure. Unable to read the map, Ethan suggests to seek out her father. Back in Baton Rouge, Liam seeks help from his grandfather's nurse. And back at the prison, Jess heads in to visit her father once more. Raphael isn't greeted by his daughter, though, but rather Billy, who is shocked to see him alive. Jess wants to leave, but she plans to do something to help save her father and breaking her out of prison. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, a really good episode. Really yes. move the story. What do we got? Three left? Yep. Um, I still think we get Nick Cage at some point. We have to. And so, I, these next three episodes have to have Riley in them as well, per IMDb. Yeah. IMDb has been wrong. So, yeah. we, you know, who knows, I, but... I think he helps get her back in the country. Yes. And contacts with the FBI where mm-hmm. he'll come into play as well. Um, and I think ultimately she gets hired right. by Ben. And um, then, boom, National Treasure 3 sets up, and we've got our two main protagonists now. Yeah. And a, yeah. a whole I, slew of a cast to have fun with. I, I kind of got concerned a couple of times because it looked like they were going to try and pair Jess and Ethan. Mm-hmm. The, way, the way they had them looking at each other and everything. They've been doing that all the whole series long. No. No, don't don't go down this yeah. road. Write that character off. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I don't know what it is. That's still that not an Ethan fan, huh? <laughs> it seems pointless to me. Like he's he's the only one that's been pushing back, right? Most of the time against her doing this, and now that you know he sees, oh yeah, she was right. Now he wants to be supported. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like no, just off yeah. with him. They even talked about the dance and everything. I think that was the last episode. It might have been the beginning of this one, too. They're like, it wasn't anything. It's just a dance. It's nothing crazy. If some, if some member of the team has to be sacrificed for the rest of them to get away... Ethan should be it. <laughs> Orin and Tasha, love them. Liam and Jess, obviously, they're close and everything, so Ethan's got to go. <laughs> yeah. He's the fifth wheel. All right. But I'm excited to see where we go from here. How does Liam join back up with them? Obviously, he's getting money, so I don't know if he knows she goes to. She's in. She know he knows she's in Mexico now. But I wonder if he's going to keep the FBI at bay, or how does he come back into the picture? Because um, I think they're going to stay in Mexico, at least in South America, until they find where the treasure is, because it's down in this area somewhere. So I'm curious to see where we go from here. But I'm really excited because this show is really good, and I really look forward to watching it every week. So. But it's time. Something we've been talking about for a while. And the first episode is finally here. And let me tell you, perfect, perfect first episode. Of course, we are going to do full-on spoilers for The Last of Us. Uh, We're obviously going to talk about the game as well, two certain things. I don't know about future... Well, we'll get to future... I don't know about future spoilers yet. About what happens in the game and things like that. I'll... I'll talk about some of the discrepancies that happen, but we'll we'll get there. But we go to TVLine.com for The Last of Us first episode. This is by Kimberly Roots, who, who she has done, I don't know if it's Santa Clauses or one of our other shows we watch. I think TV Line's the one we do for Superman and Lois. Might be, yeah. So I think Kimberly's one of them. I have to go back and look through. But... Let's see. I want to see where to start. Here we go. The series opens with footage from a 1968 talk show. Two epidemiologists discuss the possibility of a global pandemic. One worries about a virus's spread, but the other says fungi are the real danger. 
Quote, there are some fungi that seek not to kill, but to control. He says, point to examples of fungi that can affect insects, which was crazy because they talked about the whole, um, the zombie ants that, you know, people have shown things like that because everyone's like, oh, this could really happen to us and stuff like that, which is a great segue onto this for the show. Uh, the first epidemiologist scoffed that that's not possible in humans, but the second says it wouldn't take much. The world getting a little warmer, for instance, uh, for norms to change, which obviously is a thing into global warming, which is very much a true thing. He mentions cordyceps as one of the fungi capable of evolving and burrowing into our brains and taking control of billions of people. The worst part, there'd be no treatments, no preventative measures, and no cures. And then it ends, and I'm like, Oh, it's awesome. Then he goes, in short, if that hypothetical fungal takeover happens, we lose. That's it. We lose. And then it fades to black. And I was like, this is an excellent way to start this show. Setting it up to what this is. It's not a zombie virus. It's a fungal infection. Which is what the whole um, the game try, you know, tries to prove and things like that. But, oh man, and here we go. We cut to 2003 as a teenage girl wakes up at home in Austin, Texas. Then awakes her dad and makes some breakfast for her 36th birthday. The girl is Sarah, played by Dumbo's Nico Parker. Her dad is Joel. Of course, you'll know him from The Mandalorian's Pedro Pascal. And they're pretty much all each to, and they're, and they're pretty much all each other has. Plus, the uncle Tommy comes in, of course, which we know from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, Gabriel Luna. Joel's brother who swings by that morning. Sarah laments that her dad is going to work a double construction shift on his birthday, and in the background, a radio report hints that there's some sort of trouble brewing in Jakarta. What I love about this show, and that they do so well, because in the video game, you start off, and I'll let you know where we start off when we talk about it in the recap, but in video games, you're able to walk around the whole house, figure out what the world is like, what's going on, but you get this world building and stuff in the background. And yeah. you ha- you have to listen. I watch the subtitles and everything, so of course it's playing underneath everyone's talking. But you can hear like troubles brewing, riots in Jakarta, and everything. And obviously, you're like, oh, so that must be where the this infection started to spread. And like they, they did this several times, and we'll talk about it. Uh, before Sarah leaves for school, she nips into Joel's room and grabs his watch and some cash. It's September 26. We learn via an on-screen graphic later. Uh, Sarah takes the bus to a, a clock shop after school to have the watch fixed. The dread starts to build as you see police cars, fire trucks, and SWAT vehicles start going back behind in the in the window. Then a worried-looking woman comes out of the back of the shop, announces they're closed now, and rushes Sarah out, advising her to go straight home. Again, this world-building, and we're seeing it through uh, 12-year-old Sarah's eyes, which is beautiful. Sarah winds up at her neighbor's house doing homework and making cookies while hanging out with Mr. and Mrs. Adler and their elderly dementia-suffering relative. Everything seems normal until Sarah has her back turned while picking out a DVD. The old lady starts to convulse in a very horror movie type of way. But by the time an oblivious Sarah turns back from the shelf, the woman appears normal again. As Sarah says goodbye and heads home, a fighter jet flies low overhead. And you can hear, like, it's very audible. You can hear a jet flying overhead. Listen, <laughs> so I'm watching this with Jamie for the first time. Of course, I know what happens in the video games um, and did not know how faithful the show is going to be. For what we're getting right now, this is beautiful. Like, I love the backstory with Sarah, which we knew originally they were going to do that, uh, but we didn't know to what extent. Of course, we find out by this episode, but 
Jamie said, are you sure you can watch this? She goes, did you even play this game? Because of the the grandmother, the elderly lady in the background. Like, she did the whole arm start crossing, and her mouth gets big and black, and, like, she starts, you know, doing that whole clicker thing that the the, um, enemies of this game do. And I was like, that was horrifying. I said, but we haven't seen anything yet. (laughs) Because there's going to be some clicker scenes that's going to be terrifying. If if you want to, like, give me the creeps, it's either older people like that or little kids yes that are doing uh, yeah. they did an excellent job and the next scene we see of this elderly lady even more horrifying and terrifying i was oh man it was, it was good uh that night sarah gives her dad the repair of watch he teases her that she gifted him something he already owned and she used his money to fix it she says it's a thought that counts and you are never going to do it yourself and despite the ribbing you tell he's very touched by this sentiment they settle in to watch the DVD she borrowed from the neighbors, but she falls asleep. When Tommy calls from jail, needing to be bailed out after a bar roll, Joel carries his daughter to bed and kisses her head before leaving to help his brother. Alright, so this next part is where the game starts off. It has begun. Sarah wakes a little after 2am and hears helicopters passing outside. In a quick succession, she realizes Joel isn't there, turns on the TV to find the national alert system broadcasting on every channel, and goes out into the front yard to see what the Adler's dog is barking at. She returns the pooch to its home, but it won't go inside, and when Sarah enters the open door after hearing breaking glass, she nearly slips in the blood that's pulled on the floor. So in the game, the dog jumps up, and it's a jump scare on the screen door. And but you can hear the Adlers in the background. I don't know if you can ever see them. I don't remember if I actually looked outside or anything in the game, but you can hear the Adlers um, arguing. Well, so I'll, let me get to this next sense. I'll like, kind of explain that. Mister Adler is near the back door, hurt, uh, grabbing his neck. Shocked, Sarah walks toward him, and that's when she sees the old woman feeding on Mrs. Adler. Terrible tube-like sucker thingies protruding from the elderly woman's mouth. Uh, She comes after Sarah, who flees. Thank goodness, Joel and Tommy drive up just then. Tommy shoots the woman, but she gets up a moment later, and Joel is able to incapacitate her by uh, braining her with a wrench. So in the the game, you know, the dog jumps up, and you can hear the neighbors out back arguing as you're walking around the house, you know, discovering the world. And it's more of uh, the, the husband going... Oh, no, I forget her name. He said, I don't want to do this. Please, no. No, and like he screams, and you hear a gunshot go off. Clearly, she's infected and tries to bite him and all this other stuff. So very, I like this way better because you get more of a glimpse of Sarah and more world building for her, whereas in the game, she's only in, in 15 minutes, and you don't really get much of Sarah. But you, yeah. you see how she is in the... For this movie though the show they, they do a really good job here of making you care about her they mm-hmm. give her enough, enough time for that i will say this i had a flashback to another film that had a not ex- a scene exactly like this but when the grandmother you know when i'm assuming it's grandma or, yeah you know, the, the, the old lady when when she stands up and you know, she kind of has that cracking. Mm, it's horrifying, on. man. <laughs> I'm assuming, which is muscle and tendon, not bone. Yeah. Um, but it gave me a flashback, and I'm, I think you've seen this, to the film Legion. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you have that diner scene, and the older lady spider crawls up. There. Oh, it's horrifying. Just, and we're gonna, I think we're going to get more of that in this show, too. 
which terrifies me because we pretty much got that after uh, Joel, you know, uh, Tommy shoots her and she kind of crawls up a little bit and stands back up. I was like, oh, oh." (laughs) dude, the clickers. I'm pretty sure we're getting clickers tonight um, because at the end scene when it pains out of the city, I don't know if you've seen this yet, where it pains out of the city, there's several buildings and you got skyscrapers right here. One of the buildings in the lightning flash, there's a clicker that walks out and does a whole little contorting thing and like you don't notice it unless you are looking for it and i was like this show is really awesome we'll get there though as a relieved joel hugs sarah tells her we're going to be brave it's confirmed something very bad is happening all around them they hop in the truck with tommy and trying to get out of the city where the bulk of the madness seems to be taking place fans of the game will notice that despite some obvious changes there are certain sequences that pay loving homage to the original the frantic ride here is one of them like and this is what i was t- and i was freaking out because I, you know, we, we've been talking about this. How good of a game adaptation is this going to be? And this is one of the scenes that's like shot for shot. Like when, like even the, the road signs, when she's looking out at the, the burning barn and the house and everything burning down to the cars and everything. It's perfect. Like there was a whole five minutes here that is the, is the exact same thing as the game. And it is such a good job with it. Um, Tommy mows down people in his way. Joel makes the call that they're going to stop, uh, that they're not going to stop and to help a family that needs a ride. The road out of town is completely blocked by traffic and eventually Joel and co run into a military blockade. Joel quickly improvises a plan to get around it and go to Mexico, but maybe it's everywhere. Sarah says quietly. We don't have long to contemplate that horrible prospect before a honking huge major carrier. Well, uh, a major carrier. What would you like from the beverage cart? Jet crash lands on the road behind them. Pieces of the wreckage shooting into the truck and everything goes black again. Beautiful. In the game, it's the... So in the game, it's the... So the show, while they're driving down the road and you think they're going to get T-boned, when that truck stops. That that truck actually hits the, the vehicle in the game. And that's when it goes to black. They did that. They paid homage to it and then made a an airplane you know, fall down right behind them, which is even more terrifying. And I completely agree with why they did that. So... I thought it was really cool and really well done. Uh, when Sarah comes to, she looks out the window and sees one of the infected eating someone else uh, like it's closing time at Golden Corral. <laughs> Joel gets her out of the vehicle, but her ankle is messed up and she's not able to walk. As she's trying to form a new plan, a police car crashes into their truck and suddenly there's fire everywhere. Tommy is okay, but he's stuck on the other side of the wreck. He shouts that he'll meet them at the river. Joel scoots up Sarah, tells her to keep his eyes on him and nothing else, and they take off. They pass an alley full of infected, creating more infected. When Joel pauses too long to look on in horror, a very fast infected man follows him. The chase ends when a soldier takes down the infected with a bullet. Joel shouts to the soldier that he and Sarah aren't sick, but the soldier ignores him as he radios into command and receives orders, which obviously is the order to kill them on site. Joel is still shouting that they're not sick, uh, when the soldier fires on them, Joel and Sarah hit the ground and the soldier follows a minute later when Tommy kills the man just as he's about to shoot Joel. Really bad news though, Sarah took a bullet in the stomach. Joel tries to pick her up, calling her baby and murmuring it's going to be okay, but it obviously is not and she dies. Joel hugs his body to him and cries. Side note, this is heartbreaking. How do I care this much about these people so quickly? Uh, and it fades to black again. He tries to pick her up, and the movement just causes her mm-hmm. intense pain. Which it would, and yeah, and he so he can't he can't do anything. He's... Yeah. So Jamie didn't know this, which obviously if you didn't play the game, this is the iconic what drew people into the game. 
because um, this, this is the first 15 minutes. But in the show, this was like, I think, 30 minutes in, 40 minutes in. But and I, was, I knew it was coming up. This is when I thought the episode was going to end, was this part. And it didn't, and we kept going. I was like, oh, Lord, we're, we're doing this. Uh, but, man, even knowing that it was going to happen, it was still rough seeing uh, Parker and uh, Pedro Pascal act this scene out. Absolutely beautiful and very well done. Yeah, it's it's one of those things, right? Like, they did such a good job, as she references in her recap, of making you care about the characters that quickly. Well, and it's like you, you didn't know it was going to happen either. Yeah. And it's, so, oh. it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal writing. And, and like you alluded to with the jet, you know, swerving the people that were looking for it to be a shot for shot maybe mm-hmm. of the game and, and saying, no, we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're, we're going to have some stuff to surprise you. I am all in. So, yeah. Like, and it's, it's one of those things because they set in the game as well. They set Sarah up to be the main character because that's who you play as. And in the show, that's who you're focusing on the majority of it. But no, Joel is the main character of this. And man, that is such a good job. Now, this is another spot where it deviates from the game. They do 20 years after Outbreak Day. In the game, it's 10 years, so 2013. I think the game came out in 2011 or 2012. So this is another spot where it deviates, which it could cause issues later down the road when they reference music and stuff like that that hasn't been invented yet or done. So we're going to see how that works. But so far, they know what they're doing. The action then jumps to Boston about 20 years after Outbreak Day. The city is in ruins. Heavily guarded walls encircle a quarantine zone, a.k.a. the area where survivors are living, and the Military Federal Disaster Response Agency, or FEDRA, is in charge. There's a strict curfew here. The buildings within the QZ are in ruins. Ration cards are currency. Unauthorized entry or exit from the QZ is punishable by public hanging. From signs on the walls, we can see that the cordyceps infection symptoms are coughing, slurred speech, muscle spasms, and mood change. How long it takes to be fully infected depends on, what, on where on the body you've been bitten. Leg or foot, you get up to a day to put your affairs in order. Neck, head, or face, 15 minutes tops. Those who are bitten are killed, their bodies are burned, and when we see this practice in action, we realize that one of the people carrying out the cremation is Joel. Sarah's dad, who is looking grayer, grimmer, and more beat down than ever when we last saw him, apparently also does some business on the QZ's black market. As he trades a Fedra soldier some pills for a stack of ration cards, the the soldier warns him to stay off the streets for a couple of days, because a resistant group known as the Fireflies have been blowing things up and everyone's on edge. Later, we see the Firefly graffiti on the walls. When you're in darkness, look for the light, which is a very big thing in the game. Um... Before we move on here, I love, 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 love this, the world building we get in the first little bit. Uh, we see a, another adolescent teenager walking outside the QZ comes in. Um, the Fedra, I'm assuming doctor or nurse, is sitting there talking to him. Obviously, they, they scan his head. We get the little scanners for the first time. And you can see in the background, again, pay attention to the background when you're watching the show because it tells a story on its own. And we see it's red, but they don't pay attention to that because we're still focusing on the kid and the doctor. And you see the doctor look out and see it and then look back to the kid. She's like, hey, what's your favorite food? And she gives him a little injection. She goes, this is to keep the infection away. She goes, just to make sure you're healthy. It's got vitamins and things in it. And then we see the same kid 
being carted off or held by Joel and thrown into the burning pile. And it's just wonderful world building we're getting here. Like it's, it's really well done how they're doing this, uh, which very depressing, but still very well done. Uh, next we meet Tess played by fringes Anna Torv, who's getting the tar beat out of her by two goons in a dark room. From their conversation, it sounds like their deal for a truck battery went sideways. But before we get too deep into the specifics, there's an explosion that takes one of the walls out of the room they're in. When Tess gets back to her feet, one of the guys keeping her captive is dead. The blast came from a bomb placed in a jeep nearby, which has Fedra soldiers running to the scene. She says, I am not a firefly. She yells multiple times, hands up a surrender as some of them tackle and handcuff her. Uh, while that's going on, Joel is worrying about Tommy. He hasn't heard from his brother in three weeks, three weeks, which is alarming because it normally takes him no longer than a day to respond. He gets intel that Tommy likely is in Wyoming, which is smack in the middle of a lot of really bad stuff, infected, raiders, slavers, and the like. Um, so this is the one thing I did not really like that they did, but I understand why they did it. So in the game, we don't hear anything else about Tommy. Like we just pretty much forget he's a thing until about halfway through. And it's a big shocker. It's a big moment scene. Oh, he just got saved. Oh my God, it's his brother, you know, but in the show, we're clearly still in touch with Tommy and we're going to go find him. That's what the whole plan is. Um, which I think down the road, it's going to be good. But for right now, I'm like, mm, you know, I'm not too hot on that decision, but again, everything else is great. I wish that they had addressed what for me was kind of an elephant in the room on the night you know, when, when Sarah dies, because if not for Tommy getting into a bar fight, Joel's probably able to get Sarah out of there sooner Mm -hmm. and she's still alive. And I feel like as much as he cared about her, he would have held a little bit of a grudge against Tommy. Well, I think we get that Uh, because they haven't seen each other in like two years or something like that, but they're still keeping in contact with each other. So I I, I bet we get that because I think in the game, they they have an argument scene where they're still talking about it. But so I'm curious to see how they play it that way. But I'm pretty sure that's a big argument in the game, uh, that whole thing. Uh, back in his apartment, which definitely looks like it survived the apocalypse, but just barely, Joel has a drink of four, uh, takes some pills and falls into bed where he sees he's still wearing the watch that Sarah fixed, although now it is broken, truly. At some point, Tess comes home, crawls into bed, and they fall back asleep. When he wakes up, she's cooking. He's not happy that she's hurt, that she's been in federal lockup all day. And he's real mad that he hears that the guy they were trying to buy a battery from sold it to someone else. The battery is necessary for their transportation to go find Tommy, he reminds her. But she tells him to calm down and they'll figure out another way. Which, this was a big part of the opening of the game. Uh, Robert is this guy's name. And that's how you get introduced to a lot of the shooting and the sneaking around, of course. Um, he's got a bigger role in the game. But... Still a cool tie-in way to tie it into the show. Uh, Elsewhere at the local Fireflies Haven, a teen girl we see is chained up in a room. Her name is Ellie, which of course, from HBO people you know of Game of Thrones, Bella Ramsey. And her presence is the reason that every Firefly in the Boston QZ is going to leave permanently that night. They're led by a woman named Marlene, who's played by Merle Dandridge, who is actually the voice actor of Merle in the game. Nice, beautiful touch here. Um, and they're planning to take the girl west. When Marlene visits Ellie, we find out that Ellie was placed in a federal mil- military school when she was a child. Marlene informs Ellie that she was behind that decision. She says, you have a greater purpose than any of us could ever have imagined. So we're leaving tonight and we're taking you with us. And then she shares some important intel with the girl, but we don't hear that yet. 
Joel and Tess make their way outside the QZ to take back their battery. On the way, they come across a dead man whose infection has regressed to the point where he's essentially glued to the wall by the fungus. Gross, yet cool. Turns out the guy who screwed them over about the battery also screwed over Marlene and the Fireflies, and there's been a huge shootout that killed a bunch of people and wounding Marlene in the process. Still, she's able to pull a gun on Joel when he pulls one on Ellie. There's some bad blood between Joel and Marlene. He accuses her and the Fireflies of turning Tommy against him. But Marlene needs Joel to get over that and quickly because they've got something to sort out before Fedra shows up. There's a team of Fireflies waiting at the state house and she doesn't have the manpower or transportation to get there. She says, what do I have? What I do have is you and I know what you're capable of for better or for worse, she tells Tess and Joel. Uh, to Ellie's, because uh, Ellie says, what are they capable of? Which is a valid question. Marlene offers a deal. Tess and Joel get Ellie to the state house. They'll get the transportation they need. After some discussion, Joel and Tess agree. They stop by the apartment where Ellie quickly cracks the code that Joel and his compatriots have used to send messages via songs on the radio. In short, 80s music means trouble. She also manages to tick off a very gruff Joel approximately 500 times in the space of a few minutes. Uh, and things are relatively chill until they get caught near the wall by the same guard, Joel. So, uh, some spot. so while they're in the apartment, this is another scene for scene of Joel and Ellie um, going back and forth. And some of the things they say are verbatim what happened in the game, which that, we're going to get this this whole show, I know. But it's very, very, very cool. Um, things are relatively calm until they get caught near the wall by the same guard Joel sold drugs to earlier in the episode. As the soldier tries to scan Ella to see if she's infected, she loses her mind, grabs her knife, and stabs him. Joel gets between them, has a flashback to the night that Sarah died, and goes absolutely mother-flipping bananas on the guy's face. After Joel has beaten the Fedra dude's face into a paste, Tess notices that Ellie's meter is red, indicating that she is infected. Tess immediately wants to kill the kid, but Ellie, but Ellie protests that she was bitten on the arm three weeks ago and has not been turned. She adds that they'll get caught if they don't run soon, and when a dazed Joel comes back to himself a little, he grabs the guard's gun and follows the woman through a hole in the chain link fence. A sign on the fence reads, Biological Containment Area, Do Not Proceed. That again, where they're running and you can hear the Fedra soldiers on top of them, another scene for scene for the game. Um... At Joel's empty apartment, we see the radio come on. Depeche Mode's Never Let Me Down is playing, which is, of course, 80s music, which means bad things are coming. As the episode closes, we watch Tess, Ellie, and Joel make their way into the ruins of downtown Boston. And this is where you can see the scene where they kind of zoom out on the building. A clicker comes in, and which we have not been introduced yet on the show, which it's going to be horrifying. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be this next episode. Oh. We caught a glimpse in the previews. Yeah. And I I have to remind myself, there are previews for the next episode at the end of these, as well as a little kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. I have to start watching those. Game of Thrones did it, and I completely forgot. I should have watched it here, but I forgot. So, oh, man. We have got a fun show ahead of us, Chris. And I am extremely excited. I was really worried about the whole game adaptation, how they're going to do it. I've got full faith, and I can't wait to see what happens next. Yeah, it's very good. The uh, They've got the right people working on this, mm-hmm. uh, unlike Halo. And <laughs> I still need to watch that <laughs> at some point in time. I've, I don't know when. I've, but I've heard you're not missing much. Yeah. So. Well, they're making a season two, so uh, they got money from somewhere. Um, they got money to earn, apparently. Right. 
<laughs> to go along with this, The Last of Us delivered a 4.7 million viewers on Sunday night alone, which was HBO's second largest debut in a decade, second only to Hot D with 10 million in the night. Uh, of course, they broke the 10 million uh, views that following Monday. I think that it's, that's when they hit 10 million actual views on it, which is just a day later, which... Um, I've heard nothing but great things from people who haven't even watched the sh- uh, the game or anything. So it's, it's fun going with watching this with Jamie, who has not played the game or knows nothing about what's happening or what's going to happen. So I'm really excited about that part. I think I ended up watching it mm. early Tuesday morning. So oh, Monday sorry, night you, you didn't help with these numbers, Chris. I hope a weekly number. Right. I don't, you know, I don't think they needed it because they we've got numbers, and I'm excited to see what it looks like after tonight's episode to see if you know from the week people had to watch it. Like, okay, I have to watch this premiere night because yeah. of course those uh, water cooler moments that people want to be a part of. And uh-huh. so, news here before we jump into another fun recap interview of uh, something we watched this week. Cobra Kai is to end with season six, which comes sooner rather than later this year. Um, they had a little hype trailer thing of all this announcement. The biggest and baddest season, of course, is what they propose. But I'm going to the official All Valley Cobra Kai release. This is from Josh Held, John Hurwitz, and Hayden Schlossberg, of course, the writers and uh, creators of Cobra Kai. When Daniel LaRusso arrived in the Valley with his mother in 1984, little did he know that his life was about to be forever changed. The same went for three young kids from New Jersey who hadn't yet met each other. Daniel's journey from bullied teen to underdog hero became an indelible part of our childhoods and something that we would always carry with us in our hearts. Reacquainting with the world with the Karate Kid universe has been our humble honor. Making Cobra Kai has allowed us to join the same hallowed dojo once inhabited by the great Robert Mark Kamen, John Alvinson, Jerry Weintraub, and all the amazing original cast members. It has also enabled us to play Sensei, expanding the original storylines and birthing a new generation of underdogs. We've never once taken this opportunity for granted. Our day one goal with Cobra Kai has always been to end on our own terms, leaving the valley and the time in a place we've always imagined. So it's with immense pride and thankfulness that we are able to announce that, that achievement. The upcoming season six will mark the conclusion of Cobra Kai. While this may be a bittersweet day for the fandom, the Miyagi-verse has never been stronger. <laughs> I've never heard that call before, but I love it. The fandom is the best on the planet, and we hope to be telling Karate Kid stories with you down the line. Because as we all know, Cobra Kai never dies. In the meantime, strap in for the biggest season yet of Cobra Kai, and let today be a celebration of all that's to come, as well as all that's still left to be told. We couldn't do it without you. We made it. Strike first, strike hard. No mercy. Oh, perfect show, by the way. So, if you love any of the Karate Kids, you have to watch the show. It's phenomenal, and I cannot wait. And, of course, we got some other news on a TV show that we watch and recap and talk about. Invincible Season 2 finally will return later this year, and I put hopefully on here. Uh, because during the little two-minute stinger segment that they did, which was very well done, if you haven't watched it, make sure you do. Uh, that said, coming late to 2023, and it said um, sooner or later on there. So I'm like, oh, don't like that little tagline at the end because usually means later. But it's a big uh, animated show, which does take time to create, especially with how many of these actors are big, big actors. So it's, but you know, it's been since what 2020. So it's been three years. 
Has it been three years? I thought it was 21. It might have been 21. It's Listen, again, the pandemic. <laughs> when did Invincible come out? It might have been. In March 25th, 2021. You're right. God, I feel like it was a lot longer. <laughs> Releases so, this week. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, just oh. it, it'll end up being like two and a half years, which isn't terrible. Yeah, which is makes sense for an animated show, especially of this yeah. nature. It just... I think it's one of those things I've been wanting it so bad that I'm just it feels like it's been forever. When it, yeah, God, I guess it really has not been that long. Releases this week, Monday, Monday, January 23rd, The Bachelor on ABC. Chris, we are having a watchathon and probably a fantasy draft if you want to come and be a part of that tomorrow night. <laughs> Thursday, January 26th, Wolfpack on Paramount Plus. Of course, this is the Teen Wolf. They say it's not a spinoff show, but it's a spinoff show. It's in the same universe. That means it's a spinoff, if you ask me. Um, so I've, of course, been trying to catch up, which I am almost done with season six, which is the last season. So, enough for me, Chris. That's enough for me. So, we're recording, right? Yes. Right. Okay. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Before I go through my spill, I want to it's... Oh, you know. man. Don't forget to edit that, either. Yeah, know? oh, no, I've... Because I've, I, I, I cut it in two different episodes, so it'll be... Well, two different recordings, so I'll just be able to cut off the end and just throw it right back in together. There you go. Phew. Really, uh, you just did releases this week. I was starting to read your thing. <laughs> um, movies. Have you watched anything else Mm-mm. other than our main? No, this this week Ant-Man. coming up, I'll I'll watch Ant Man in preparation for Ant Man, which I got us good seats this time. So awesome! We were one of the first ones to buy the tickets. So yeah, they went up though. I, yeah, I, you know. yeah. What is what is up with those prices? Like, I mean, it's inflation's hitting everywhere, and I was not expecting to have a $15 movie ticket. And I was, because, you know, I'm buying for three over here. So, ugh. Okay. Anyways, yeah, it it adds up quick. All right. So, our movie review for this week The Pale Blue Eye. You can't really tell behind me because it's so minimal. Mm. But we've got, but it's there. Pale's character and Pale Blue Eye underneath it. Trying to be fancy over here with our backgrounds. Um, so I'm going to run through the plot. We are going to talk spoilers yes. in this because it's been out now for a month. Um, as we talked about before the show, once it's been out a week, we're going to we're yeah. going to do spoilers. We're, we're full it, on in. If you care that much to see it, you've already watched it. Right. And we've given you ample time and opportunity to watch it. It's on the title. I mean, it's not going to be caught off guard by what we're talking about. So. Unless we just throw you a curveball. True. Uh, so, the pale blue eye. Here's here's the... I'm pulling this from Wikipedia, so there's no one person to give credit to. Um, we'll just say it's a community deal. In 1830, alcoholic retired detective Augustus Landor is asked by the military to investigate the hanging of Cadet Leroy Fry at the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. Landor is a widower who lives alone since his daughter Matilda ran off a few years previously. After Fry was hanged, his heart was removed from his body. In the morgue examining the corpse, Landor finds a small fragment of a note clutched tightly in Fry's hand. Also, marks on Fry's neck and fingers suggest he did not hang himself, but was murdered. With the officer's permission, Landor enlists the help of Edgar Allan Poe 
another cadet at the academy who has expressed an interest in the case. Poe and Landor deduced from the writing on the note fragment that it was summoning Fry to a secret meeting. After a cow and a sheep are found in the area butchered and with their hearts removed, it's deduced the murder could be linked to black magic rituals. Another cadet, Ballinger, goes missing and is later found hanged with both his heart and his genitals removed. A third cadet, Stoddard, who was a colleague of the two victims, then disappears, and it's presumed by Landor that this man had reason to believe he was next in line to be killed. Landor and Poe begin to suspect the family of Dr. Daniel Marquis, who was first brought into the investigation to perform the autopsy on Fry. Particular suspicion is placed on his son Artemis and his daughter Leah, who suffers from random seizures. While visiting Dr. Marquis's house, Landor finds an old officer's uniform. A man impersonating an officer had been involved in the mutilation of Fry's body. Landor confronts Dr. Marquis, who admits he had resorted to black magic to cure Leah of her seizures, and initially she appeared to improve. Poe is enchanted by Leah and volunteers to do whatever she wants. However, he's drugged and wakes to find Artemis and Leah are about to cut out his heart in accordance with the ritual to cure Leah. Landor manages to arrive in time to rescue Poe, but the building catches fire and Leah and Artemis die. Thinking that the case is now solved, the military thanks Landor for his service. However, Poe, recovering from his near-death experience, notices that the handwriting on the note fragment found in Fry's hand matches that of Landor. Threading together all the information that he's gathered, it becomes apparent Landor was in fact the killer of the, of the cadets. Poe confronts Landor with his conclusion. It transpires that two years previously, Landor's daughter Matilda was raped by Fry, Ballinger, and Stoddard after attending her first ball. Traumatized by the experience, she later killed herself by jumping off a cliff. Landor did not disclose this to anyone, but pretended she had run away. Distraught, Landor set out to avenge his daughter. He left the note for Fry, luring him to a lonely spot before hanging him. However, a patrol happened to walk by, so Landor was forced to leave the body there. Leah and Artemis stole the heart for their ritual. After killing Ballinger, Landor mutilated his corpse to make it appear the cadet had been murdered by the same madman who had desecrated Fry's body. Poe tells Landor he has two notes with handwriting samples that can link Landor directly to the murders, but before leaving, Poe burns them. Landor is later seen standing at the cliff where his daughter leapt to her death. He lets her hair ribbon float away in the wind, saying, Rest my love. Dan killed himself. I don't know that he did. Yeah, I think it's left for like up for interpretation. Like, so I'm not, I'm, because she did. He did the same thing she did. Like, he put her arms out, and that's when he let go of the ribbon, and then it fades to black after you see the ribbon flying away. So I'm like, I, I really don't know. But man, what a twist that was! Because yeah. you think everything's fine and done, and then you come back to the 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 cat his house. And he goes in, no, no. He goes, you did this. He goes, this is what I suspect. And Landor was like, yeah. He goes, you're absolutely right. And he told him why. And I thought that was very, very well done. I said before we started recording, I was talking to you about it. I love when you have these twist endings to these murder mystery whodunit. And Jamie pointed out after we found out that Landor did it, that Stoddard, that the only one that lived, was very... Throughout the whole movie, after the first death, he was very um, cautious and very wiry. 
looking. And that's because he knows why they're getting murdered. And which is just wonderful. I thought that was so well done. And he knows the person questioning him mm -hmm. is the one that's yeah. doing it. Like, what are you going to do? You know, like, right. he knows deep down he deserves it. Well, see, it's it's like all the they did a very good, the creators and writers did a very very good job with this, like because uh, the second murder was they made note you know it was like it was done by somebody else carved the heart out, but they also mentioned here like castrated as well yeah, and I was like yeah. okay that's you know just something different something new or whatever but you find out why his genitals were cut off at the end of this and it's just it was just happenstance that someone needed a heart. And that's how Landor got put in. And like they even went back to the very opening scene where he was at the Creekside. I was like, this is very well done. And man, Christian Bell's and Harry Melling's acting, uh, which of course, the Harry, I only know him from um, the Harry Potter shows. He's the cousin that's been in every movie. And he is a phenomenal actor. Like he did such a, a fun and very well job. Very, uh, very dark ending to the, uh, the siblings getting crushed by the uh the awnings of the ice house but man this was a good movie i gave this a four and a half stars like so far this is my favorite movie of the year i mean i know it's january 22nd but this is my favorite movie of the year so far four and a half as well awesome. and melling to me somebody needs to lock him up contractually for Edgar Allan Poe yes. uh, film. Like we, we need to see him play Poe in a in a biopic. Yeah, like he looks just like from the pictures and things you see of Edgar Allan Poe. Like he is a I mean on top of being a great actor, looks just like him, which is very concerning. Uh but and this is not a Edgar Allan Poe story like you would think, but I thought this was very well done how they made it a Edgar Allan Poe story. So I thought that was very well done how they did this. Yeah, you can sit like he even at one point invites Leah to the cemetery mm -hmm. as a first date, and she's she's kind of she was taken aback by that. <laughs> yeah, it's different, right? So she's intrigued and she goes with him, and uh, so you get these little hints of what makes Poe unique mm -hmm. and what makes him different. And his then, mother still haunting him and talking to him at night and things like that. It's, yeah. So good. Also, Toby Jones is in this as uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Marquis. He's always fun to watch and stuff. And good performance. Lucy Boynton plays mm -hmm. Leah. Uh, the scene where she has the seizure and her, her jaws clenching in her teeth. They are... did very well on that. Like, I immediately knew it was a seizure. They did really good with that. She, she played that very well. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough, her mother in this played by Jillian Anderson, who um, most notable to, I think, a lot of people for her role as Dana Scully on the X-Files, hmm. uh, but also in a number of other great films and shows. Um, so it was fun to see her back in something. Oh, good. Like she was good. in 217 episodes of the X-Files. Good Lord. Yeah. yeah. Good for her. Uh, but... Uh, Robert Duvall is is Jean Pepe, who mm -hmm. uh, we we barely very, see him. Yeah, but a very so, interesting character. Yeah. I mean, he probably did all his stuff in one day and mm -hmm. got out. Of it. But uh, 
He had a tattoo, like he had scars and tattoo markings from like the occult on his hands and everything. Very well done. Like very well done. I wouldn't mind. And and this is based on a book and I haven't looked into it. So I don't know if there's more books in the series. I wouldn't mind seeing another story. Oh, me either. That's, I need to look that up. Uh, Um, Based on that book by Lewis Bayard. I'm trying to think offhand if there was anyone else. I'm looking down through the cast list to see if there's anybody else. That's interesting. John Fetterman played a man in the tavern. He was uncredited. He, of course, oh. is now a uh, U.S. senator. Yeah. Wow. That's so, interesting. <laughs> I wonder how that came about. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he, he's, he's, he beat Dr. Oz in that, in that mm-hmm. way. Um, As he should have. Thankfully. Yeah. Uh, no, no, Timothy Spall. Uh, so, yeah, two Harry Potter alumni in here. All these reality people now thinking that they can go mm-hmm. politicians. Um, okay, this is an interesting bit of trivia. The movie title comes from the following. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. From Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Mm-hmm. Dude, his, I love his work. He's one of my favorite authors. Yeah. Because, I mean, his story, like, through school, you always read it. People did not want to read, of course, anything in school. But just very, like, his mind was so twisted, and he lived a very, very sad life. But uh, very great poet, writer, and, oh, man. My issue with reading in school was they never wanted to read what I wanted to read at, yeah. at that time. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, here, here's another interesting thing that I, I, I'm not 100% familiar with everything Poe wrote. I'm familiar with the big stuff. Right. Um, in the film, Edgar promises to honor Landor by including him in a future story. Poe's final short story is entitled Landor's Cottage. Mm. I did not. So, uh, so I got a book. I've like a it's like a, one of those giant things you get from Barnes and Noble of like everything. It's either it's either up there or it's in Zoe's room because Zoe was reading through it because she was introduced like a year or two ago to Edgar Allan Poe. And now I want to read that just to save it the comparisons. That's pretty cool though. It does mention Poe actually did attend West Point for a while around mm-hmm. 1830. He had already seen the first of his poetry published, and so that ties in with what happens in the film. He's getting. I think it's at the dinner party, right? Where, yeah. Where they mention that he's a he's a published poet. Right. Well, they even asked him to in the little secret meeting they were doing past curfew with the the rapists and the the boys and everything. They said, "Oh, just give us a good poem, real quick." And it was a very funny one they gave him. But oh, I love this movie. This is a great movie. It's one I would love to own, but you know Netflix. So. Right. Um. If I remember correctly, too, right, the, the the poem that he makes up, isn't it about taking advantage of a young lady? Mm-hmm. So it's, and it's odd that he doesn't know the story yet. Right. But he makes up that poem, and 
he's among the three that did it and like it's it's crazy like they nodded the stuff like that the whole time like they um like the the great great grandfather that had the occult book that the that leah got like him being in the background like you don't even see his face but you see his shirt and the symbol and then that ties back into what we saw earlier. It's just some of that stuff is really well done. I love when they give little hints like that. This would have been a five-star movie for me. It was just a little bit of a slow burn at the beginning. But then once they got going, it got going. Yeah, it was. It was It was one of those that just sort of... They. But you don't have to wait long. Mm-mm. They lay the foundation really well. It's always interesting to me, too, to see how they... Uh, so Bale when we first see him he's he's down by that creek mm-hmm. you know, and he's summoned back to his cottage by uh it's not the admiral but i can't remember what rank he holds uh but he's come to get him about the case and you can just like bale's hair mm-hmm. you, you, know, you see him from behind you're like like he he probably hasn't like washed his hair in a while because it yeah. just looks matted and and everything and and that's what it would have been back then because right. they didn't they couldn't especially in winter time i mean you'd have to bring in that ice cold water and heat it up and i ain't putting that through my head <laughs> but they're so it's good to see when productions are um so aware of the details like that mm-hmm. it just makes it more enjoyable to watch right that's what i like about it so we're both four and a half stars on this right now. This is yeah, I, I can see this end in the year in my top five. Mm-hmm. It's going to be tough to beat. I, I think so, but we're and it's exciting because we talked about beforehand. We're going to start doing um, try and watch some of these Oscar nominated movies for right. film of the year and stuff like that, which I'm really excited about. I don't know why we have not thought about doing that in the past, but mm. I'm really excited to do this. So which and, brings us yeah to the announcement for next week. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, which is a multiverse movie. Mm-hmm. Basically, I've heard a lot of good things about. Not Marvel, but it is a multiverse. It's also expected to be nominated for Best Picture, and that's kind of what you were just alluding to. We're gonna the nominations hit Tuesday. We're mm-hmm. recording this on Sunday, so by the time we have to pick the next movie, we'll have the nominees, and we'll be able to. I'll probably rewatch Elvis. It's not going to take a lot for me to. No, re-watch. that that's not going. No, just, just mention it to me. I'm going to watch it. <laughs> um, so it it'll be fun. We'll take our show whenever we our last show before the awards. We can go over who we think will win mm-hmm. the major categories. So that'll mm, be fun. Be exciting. So that's part of our 100th episode: is the everything, everywhere, all at once review. Oh, that's right. I keep forgetting that that's next week. So exciting. Mm. All right. Notable news. The Thunderbolt starts shooting in June, according to Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I would read the the first bit, and there's an ad, and then the spoiler stuff, because that's where it really gets into the... This is just the whole story, because it gets into some good stuff here. Just read the whole story. Yeah, just read the whole thing. <laughs> uh, this comes from Variety.com with a byline to Matt Donnelly. Titled, Julia Louis-Dreyfus will shoot Marvel's Thunderbolts in June and demands to kick ass. I really want to fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Julia Louis-Dreyfus's reign over the Marvel Cinematic Universe has only just begun. In her new Variety cover story, the award-winning comic force behind Veep discussed her immersion into the billion-dollar comic book world and how far she's willing to go in bringing the mysterious Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine to life. Louis-Dreyfus was briefly introduced in credit scenes and cameos over multiple Marvel films and series so far, including her debut in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, followed by Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow. Which should have been no. flip-flopped, but you know, COVID. Right, right. And, and enough of this Falcon and Winter Soldier stuff. We all know that it's Sam and Bucky. Yes. Uh, known casually as Val, the Contessa is a powerful woman with ominous motives who typically shows up in the aftermath of the international incidents kicked up by Earth's mightiest... When she does, she has a knack for recruiting the most broken and vengeful among them into her service. Warning. Spoilers ahead for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. The Contessa last appeared in the 2022 blockbuster Black Panther Wakanda Forever, where the audience learns she's been named director of the CIA. This sets the stage for her strongest outing to date, the upcoming film Thunderbolts, which Louis Dreyfus told Variety will film this June. The plot's been described by Marvel Chief Creative Officer Kevin Feige as the tale of a ragtag bunch of unincorporated superheroes, including Florence Pugh's Yelena Belova and Sebastian Stan's Bucky Barnes. Louis Dreyfus is no longer content with cameos, she said. She wants to crack some skulls. <laughs> I love this. I I, I actually pitched it, Louis Dreyfus said. I told him I really, really want to fight. We'll see if it happens. I haven't seen the script yet. When reminded about Marvel's intense stunt training, she reluctantly agreed, uh, I better get in shape. <laughs> Others hitting the gym for Thunderbolts included Wyatt Russell returning as the character U.S. agent, David Harbour reprising his Black Widow role of Red Guardian, Olga Kurilenko as Taskmaster, and Hannah John Kamen as Ghost. They'll all be answering to Louis Dreyfus. Top Marvel production executive Nate Moore teased last summer as her character will emerge as the MCU's most formidable behind-the-scenes leader since Samuel L. Jackson, Nick Fury. There's so much secrecy around it, Louis Dreyfus told Variety of the gig. When I first started shooting it, I had to go to set wearing a black cloak with a hood and keep my head down so nobody could see it was me walking onto the soundstage. She also confirmed Black Panther director Ryan Coogler's recent revelation that the Contessa's significant role in Wakanda Forever was scaled back to accommodate more storylines surrounding the death of King T'Challa, played by the late Chadwick Boseman. Her storyline will be further unpacked in Thunderbolts and beyond. While we wait to learn more about the Contessa, Louis Dreyfus has been finding ways to make the character her own. In the original comic, she has sort of a white streak in her hair, but I thought purple would make it a little more of this world today. The actor said of the neon streak that Contessa rocks in her hair. And I didn't want her to look too much like Cruella or anything like that. Thunderbolts is currently slated to open July 26, 2024. Good for her. Like, she, yeah. like, that makes me really happy. Because, again, we've talked about this, you know, in episodes before. But these actors wanting to be in this universe, and she's like, no, I'm making this character my own. And she goes, this is what I want to do with it. She goes, I just don't want to be someone in the background. And that makes me so excited for the movie because I mean, she's obviously a big part of it. So but I really enjoyed her wanting to be a piece of it. Too that we're seeing Ghost again, finally. It's been finally. Ant-Man 2. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. 
Um, next bit of news, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Once and always. 30th, 30th anniversary special premieres on Netflix on April 19th. With original people coming now, back. From what, I, from what I remember hearing, Amy Jo Johnson not back? I don't th- right. think so. So. Yeah, so... They got most of them. Right. One and Tommy's dead too, so he killed himself a couple months ago, so Yeah. Unfortunately. I didn't know how long ago they had filmed. I didn't know if he might have That's what everyone's concerned about. I'm not sure. I didn't delve too much into it, but people are wondering if they're gonna do reshoots and things like that for it, but I mean it still comes out in three months, so don't really know. Releases this week, Teen Wolf the movie. On Paramount Plus, January 26th. Which is weird. Dropping a show and this movie the same exact day. I don't really understand that, but... So this is a remake. This is... So they had six seasons on MTV. And then this is the the movie, like, I think it's like 10 years after the series. Yeah. Because when I see Teen Wolf, I think of the Michael J. Fox movie. Never watched it. That is the reason that this exists. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I need to watch it. I just never did. Because like, during the first two seasons of Teen Wolf, they pay homage to it a little bit. Because they, uh, Derek Hale, who's played by Terry, Tyler Hecklin, who is our Superman now, um, played basketball back when he was early doing it. And they made it so homages to that. So. Yeah. Yeah, <sighs> Teen, Teen Wolf is Michael J. Fox. Teen Wolf 2 was Jason Bateman. Mm. I need to watch both of those. Uh, I think I would enjoy both of them. Yeah. Uh, and now on to games, Tyler. Chris, you've been playing anything this week? I've been very boring this week. I haven't, you know. Go to sleep too early, man. <laughs> outside of my normal stuff. That's why I've, I've been playing Final Fantasy VII and then Destiny, obviously. Almost. I was this close to buying uh, NBA uh, 2K23. Yeah. So close. But it's seventy dollars for the Xbox version, the Series X version. I'm just like, I just I can't drop that right now. No, so, that's insane. Yeah, when because all the other like your NFL, the Madden, and baseball are all like twenty dollars right now. They're on yeah. sale, so I'm like, that's I was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna play that finally. And then it's still seventy dollars. I was like, no, you know what? I'm good. We're almost halfway through this season. I'm good. There's no need for it to be seventy dollars. Yeah. So, uh, only got one gaming news here to talk about and it's marvel's avengers going to be shut down uh you you know we talked about this in text i was like i'm just surprised it wasn't sooner because story was good on it everything post game terrible uh going to dualshockers.com and this is by jose garcia uh in a recent report by Xputer, the publication claimed that according to their sources ongoing development for the live service title marvel's avengers will be shutting down soon over at studio crystal dynamics it had been previously reported this was going to happen sometimes in 2023 but Xputer is now claiming that the shutdown could occur as early as next week um so this was this is the story that broke was this from Xputer, but then crystal dynamics came back i think this was the next day and said uh, Crystal Dynamics has now confirmed that Marvel's Avengers will no longer receive new content following the game's 2.8 update on March 31st, 2023. Cosmetic purchases will be turned off that day as well. Official support will end on September 30th, 2023. Credit, credits will become in-game resources. Um, see conversion here. So, 
Supposedly, the team had been planning to support the game with new content updates up until late 2023. However, the title's lead developer, Brian Wagner, allegedly left the studio after being stripped of his spokesperson privileges publicly by the official Crystal Dynamics Twitter account. Xperia claims that his position will not be replaced, and the team still working on Marvel's Avengers is increasingly small, and that most devs in the small team are also working on the studio's other projects. So, I mean, writing was on the wall, though. I just didn't know why. I thought it would be sooner, truthfully. But yeah, September 2023. So if you're playing it, I mean, your last update comes in March. So I heard something too. Uh, it just popped back in my head this week about Bethesda and Xbox layoffs. Oh yeah, that was a a big. So Microsoft laid off, I think, ten thousand people in their in their Xbox studios and things like that. Um. There was another company that laid off a bunch of people this week, too. Um, but we've got a big Xbox and Bethesda showcase this week on uh, Wednesday. So, like, this, it's a rough time to try and be doing a showcase for the year to come when you're laying off a lot of employees. Uh, 343 Studios, same thing. They laid off a lot of people. Uh, which, of course, with the... I won't say failure of Halo Infinite, but the disappointing halo infinite that's sad to see a lot of people thought that or saying that okay so good 343 is not going to be doing halo anymore but they had a random tweet this most recent um i think it was like friday because all this news broke and everything let's see if i can find this tweet um because it was very very weird so they had the layoffs you know and then they had all right, let me go to 343 Studios, which, of course, they just don't have their own account, which is dumb. Uh, latest. I'm trying to find the exact tweet. I think it's under Halo, maybe. Sorry, I should have had this prepped. It completely slipped my mind. Yep, so yesterday they did, which is on a Saturday. This is from Pierre Hensy. Halo and Master Chief are here to stay. 343 Industries will continue to develop Halo and now and in the future, including epic stories, multiplayer, and more of what makes Halo great. That was it. Two sentences. Had all these layoffs off, being reports are coming out that you're no longer doing Halo, and you make a two-sentence statement on a Saturday. Uh, if that doesn't show what Halo Infinite was, I don't know what does. <laughs> um, notable new releases coming out this week for Spoken for PC and PS5, January 24th. Uh, Risen, PS4, Xbox One, Switch, January 24th. World War Z gets its next-gen update, January 24th. Hitman World of Assassination on everything, January 26th. Hitman 3 Freelancer Mode, everything, January 26th. The new PS5 DualSense Edge controller comes out for January 26th. And then the Dead Space remake for PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X, and PC, January 27th. Not playing it. Don't do horror. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all so much for listening and watching. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Nerdwide Podcast. Uh, had a fun episode talking The Last of Us Episode 1 and The Pale Blue Eye. Don't forget, next week is our big 100th episode, so make sure you tune in for some fun uh, down memory lane for some surprises potentially and where we're going for our next 100 episodes. Uh, social media, you can follow us on Nerdwide. 
on the Twitter at nerd underscore wide. You can follow me personally at Ty underscore Haynes. You can follow Chris at MavTN7. Facebook, search nerdwide.com, nerdwide podcast, or just nerdwide. We're the first thing that pops up on every one of those searches. So make sure you're following us there. If you're not subscribed, that's where we show our, if we miss an episode or anything crazy like that, that's where we post all of it. And so, of course, it's where our episodes post as well if you're not subscribed. As always, this has been this week's episode of the Nerdwide Podcast, and we cannot wait to celebrate our 100th episode with you next week. Have a great week, everybody.